Metallica are arguably the most commercially successful and critically acclaimed heavy metal band of all time. However, their first album of the 21st century, Saint Anger, polarized fans and critics when it came out due to its unusual sound, its relentlessly pulverizing heaviness and tempos, and its nakedly emotional and personal lyrics. Throughout the years, that polarization eventually shifted to the way of overall derision and disenchantment, not just from music critics, but more importantly, from hardcore metalheads and Metallica fans. In the nearly 20 years since its release, St. Anger has become something of an albatross around the band's necks, and something the band members have sought to distance themselves from. However, in recent years, there's been a bit of a groundswell of revisionist fan support for St. Anger itself, and yours truly curmudgeons are part of that coterie. Bold, daring, emotionally honest, innovative, truly original, heavier than an elephant's nutsack and rocking harder than a caged tiger on crystal meth. St. Anger was the last time Metallica stepped out of their comfort zone to create an inspiring masterwork that made most other rock music on the radio in 2003 sound like a crappy Smith's covers band. In the year 2022, it sounds even better, and yours truly curmudgeons will make the case as to why St. Anger may very well be one of the most underrated albums of all time. Welcome to the 28th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Welcome, everyone, to the 28th, yes, 28th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is Christopher O'Connor coming to you from suburban Houston. And with me, as always, is Arturo Andrade coming to you from Gwangju, South Korea. And we host a podcast that's made just for you. We don't do hot takes around here. We do honest takes. So then this belongs to you. Well, who the hell are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, as sure as heck does here on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, where we not only celebrate the music, we live its majesty in full color and at full force. And hey, there's a really good chance that you'll learn some stuff here that you never knew before. And now you can join our new invite-only Facebook group, which we call the Curmudgeon Rock Report's Curmudgeonly Community. Join us there and share thoughts, musings, and random excitement with fellow travelers along the curmudgeonly path to rock and roll goodness. Hey, 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 Arturo, what's going on? Good, man. I am on a metal edge. Uh, For those of you out there who uh, are part of our uh, Facebook group, um, we've been posting... Um, the theme has been underrated heavy metal bands or heavy metal bands with underrated songs. We've posted videos by the Melvins, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, Fuzz, uh, Ty Siegel's side project, and uh, the almighty Electric Wizard as well. Um, and of, of course, this is all leading up to this episode, um, which is we're going to talk about the very, very underrated St. Anger album, by Metallica, and I'm even wearing an ACDC t-shirt right now. So I'm all about metal today. 
Yeah, and I haven't shaved in two weeks, so I look like I belong. I, I look like I belong at least in an art metal band. Oh, and uh, and uh, before I forget, shout out to Michael Eisenstein who shared uh, "Unsung" by Helmet yeah. as as part of our uh, underrated metal string. And damn, was that a good call! Uh, so uh, big ups, Mike. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, we now uh, start our regular foray into the parallel universe. Uh, here in the parallel universe, we're there now, we've been transported, uh, we gaze our focus on newer music and on a world where uh, rock acts uh, that uh, resemble the kind of stuff that you would get in the 70s and 80s with new and brilliant touches can still feel, uh, fill stadiums, can still get all the love, and there's still a communal experience around singular artists and those are the kind of artists and those are the kind of trends. Uh, notice I said trends yeah. uh, that focus that uh, predominate uh, here, uh, you know, on this side of the space time continuum. Uh, with that, uh, since we focus on albums, uh, Arturo, what album are you queuing up uh, for our listeners uh, tonight? Yes. Uh, Buffalo Nichols, real name Carl Nichols is a solo blues artist originally from Milwaukee, now residing in Austin, Texas. And he released his self-titled debut album last year to a great uh, critical acclaim. Basically, it's this. Buffalo Nichols, young black man, reclaims the blues from old white men and puts a socio-political stamp on it without abandoning the blues' inherent existential angst and in fact kind of making it contemporary again. It's stripped down, direct, and minimalist blues the way God intended the blues to be. Uh, Standout tracks, Another Man is essentially the first blues Black Lives Matter anthem. Uh, Living Hell and Sickbed Blues are harrowing depictions of depression worthy of the best Robert Johnson songs. Um, With incredible lyrics such as, The Way You Hurt Me Showed Me How to Love, How to Love is a prime example of finding hope and redemption at the end of a broken relationship. The music is mostly acoustic with the slightest of drum accompaniment, but songs such as Back on Top prove that Nichols can do swampy, groovy, electric blues reminiscent of uh, Mississippi icons like Junior Kimbrough. Um, This is the best, in my opinion, best straightforward, badass blues album Uh, I've heard in quite some time. And at the very least, it's better than anything the Black Keys have done recently. So, yeah, check out Buffalo Nichols. (laughs) Yeah, I I listened to this record uh, also a couple of times uh, here before uh, the broadcast. Uh, Very strong. And it's interesting that a real blues artist is back on uh, Fat Possum Records. How about that? Yeah, I was going to say, for those of you uh, that aren't, really familiar at Fat Possum. Just a quick story. Uh, this was started by uh, a few white boy uh, blues enthusiasts or uh, vernacular music enthusiasts uh, who uh, went attended the University of Mississippi together in the early 90s. Uh, they wanted a, a label that would uh, find uh, untapped uh, rural blues and kind of current artists, and they would be older uh, guys. Uh, their two most famous findings during that period were Junior Kimbrough, uh, as Arturo mentioned, and R.L. Burnside, who mm-hmm. uh, did some fabulous records uh, on that label, especially 
there was a 2005 record that really kicked ass. Well, what they found was, uh, as they went along, uh, it was a good idea, but it wasn't the most profitable idea. And so over time, in the spirit of survival, uh, they uh, went in all kinds of directions. Uh, at some point, they acquired uh, Al Green's publishing catalog. Wow. Or, and recording catalog anyway, and they re-released uh, his uh, 1975 Greatest Hits record. Now, I don't know. There was a uh, recording guy, a producer, historian. Uh, I think his name was uh, George Mitchell from Georgia. And uh, he had all this stuff. So it's sort of secondhanded. They came across uh, the rights to uh, Towns Van Zant records and uh, some of these other folks. And then... So they had that, but then they also kind of went really eclectic and it's like, okay, what are bands out there doing interesting stuff that we can, uh, that we can, uh, attach ourselves to. And the most famous of those, the black keys, right. Uh, where they released rubber factory, uh, and, uh, you know, the first couple black, uh, well, well it was the rubber factory was their third album, but they're first on fat possum. And then after that was magic potion, magic potion from 2006. And then after that, the keys got signed to a major label. Yes. But this, just the fact that this was supposed to be started as a Mississippi blues, uh, yeah. reverence record and the black keys somehow found on it. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, was interesting. And then they've just kind of morphed into this, uh, really weird ass, um, uh, label uh, since then. Uh, and so uh, the rapper LP, uh, yeah. known from uh, Company uh, Flow and uh, Run the Jewels, is on there now. Royal Trucks, of all bands, mm. that yeah. you haven't heard from in you know, really, in, at least on the hip radar, you haven't heard anything from them in 20, uh, 20 years. Spiritualized uh, the Weather Station, which uh, made a bunch of top 10 lists uh, last year. And uh, strangely and oddly and bizarrely, X is now signed to <laughs> Fat Possum. The uh, the reunited John Doe uh, Xine uh, 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 collective is now Xine on there. Cervenka. Yes, Xine Cervenka are on there. And so Buffalo Nichols is now the first uh, blues artist on this um, on this label in 20 years. And I'm glad they found him. Uh, the Austin Blues Boy by way of uh, Milwaukee, and uh, he's got a he's got a style to him. Like you said, it's 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 very bleak and it's very harrowing, and in some spots very angry. I mean, you mentioned uh, the Black Lives Matter anthem there towards the uh, end of the record, uh, but he's got a, a a singular guitar style. It's mostly acoustic with a little bit of slide and a little bit of electric mixed in there, but it's. It's very dexterous. It's very, um, it's very competent. You know, this he's not a street musician uh, in the classic sense. He's he's got the chops, and uh, it's twenty seven minutes. And like these days, any artist that can pull off an album in anywhere between twenty six and thirty four minutes is close to my heart. Uh, <laughs> you know, the the shorter album is the better. I mean, this is uh, what I see as a trend uh, right now. Is I think that you're getting these artists that are understanding that uh, while they may be a little bit more prolific, uh, right. at least they're, at least the, uh, the, the individual nuggets they're putting out there are shorter and more digestible and are not as uh, full of garbage. Uh, case, as case in case in point, King Gizzard and the lizard wizard. They're out. Look at, yeah, they have a million albums, but they're all like in the 30 minute range. 
Yeah, there, yeah, between thirty and forty-five minutes, and uh, you know, and there's not a lot of wasted well, wasted space. So anyway, I mean, that's just some context about Buffalo Nichols. I think that uh, it is an album that's uh, worth exploring. Uh, very intriguing. Uh, you know, again, I can't. You know, I know that you had it number three, I believe, on yep. your uh, yep. uh, best of. I wouldn't put it that high. I think it's more interesting uh, than good. It may grow on me. Uh, I think the yeah, I think the songs get better as they go along, which is uh, which is a little bit uh, interesting because the um, the opening single is the first uh, song, yeah, uh, on the record. Uh, but I think by the end of the record, it's it's really competent. And uh, one thing, and I want you to address this: uh, the last Austin blues man that got some love in the rock press was Gary Clark Jr. Yeah. Who I love, by the way, but is a total like 180 in, in a lot of respects from, from Mr. Nichols. Yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, Gary Clark's really talented and he's probably a better guitar player, but I just find his, his version of the blues is just very dry and dull. It doesn't have yeah. that, uh, that spark and that youthful anger or angry youthfulness, if you want to say, of uh, of Buffalo Nichols. Um, it, 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 Gary Gary Clark sounds like he's frozen in time, whereas Buffalo Nichols sounds like a contemporary, modern, young blues guy who's yeah. taking you know you know contemporary issues that people can identify with, you know, depression and mental illness and, you know, and the whole and the civil rights movement and doing something about it, you know, and yeah. Gary, Clark, Gary Clark to me is always at his best when he's like imitating other people. <laughs> yeah. And, and like I said, Gary Clark is a fabulous guitarist. Uh, he's gotten better as a songwriter as he's gone along. Uh, I always kind of thought of him as like, like a more rocking Robert Cray. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, but uh, Buffalo Nichols, I think you're right. I mean, he's, he's doing contemporary music in a 1930s blues idiom. Right, uh, which is a really kind of intriguing uh, combo. So, uh, long way of saying, dude, I think you got the the nail on the head here. Yes. Now we're going to the exact 180 degree opposite of Buffalo Nichols for your recommendation, Chris. Y- yeah, we 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 kind of have a habit of this whole 180 uh, thing, and so uh, I'm doing something a little bit different uh, here than I, I would normally do. We're not focusing on a singular album and i'm not exactly sure it's the kind of thing that normally would get covered uh in the waterfront so to speak of the curmudgeon rock report but uh we care because it involves johnny greenwood the uh guitar well you could call him a guitar genius but he doesn't do much with guitar uh these days which will not anymore yeah we'll get into this he's now become uh He's increasingly become an A-list music or uh, score guy for films. Uh, He's he's a scoreman. And so uh, let's get into this a little bit. Now, uh, there's a reason that fans and music critics alike hold on to Radiohead's masterpiece one-two punch of Kid A and Amnesiac, which we can now actually say without irony were released more than a generation ago. Yep. Uh, that is because they haven't done a whole lot worth celebrating then. <laughs> sure, they gave us the brilliant electro pop of 2007's In Rainbow, in Rainbows, 
But otherwise, uh, the band's output has devolved into self-aggrandizing wankery and slop. Arturo and I may never tire of bemoaning the flabbergasting demise of Radiohead. That's right. But hey, Johnny Greenwood is still going strong. Not as a rocker, though. Uh, Many of you listening remember the beyond brilliant score Greenwood composed for Paul Thomas Anderson's beyond, beyond brilliant film from 2007, There Will Be Blood. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and his milkshake uh, is the most famous part of that for those of you who aren't as cinephile or as adoring as me. Uh, Anyway, so you might not be aware, however, that Greenwood has actually scored all of Anderson's films since then. Uh, It's been an artistic partnership of sorts, and it's presented Mr. Greenwood uh, with something of a way forward. Uh, Greenwood did manage to score a couple of non-Anderson films before 2021, uh, most notably the uh, really good 2011 film uh, from Japan, Norwegian Wood. Uh, And he also released a couple of other far-out collaborations. Uh, Definitely, and I discovered this in the course of doing my research here, uh, check out 2015's wild romp of an album, Junoon. Uh, You familiar with this, Arthur? No, I'm not. this is Johnny Greenwood working with the Rajasthan Express, which is <laughs> it's basically like if there's such a thing as an Indian uh, an Indian jazz funk band. Uh, that's it. And then an Israeli-born singer named Shai Ben Zur, uh, and it's it's pretty wild actually. It's uh, very Eastern influence, but electronic as well. And so it's uh, it's worth checking out. I know it's it's on Spotify, which you know these days. At least this week, Spotify is on everybody's shit list for fucking over Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, for that matter. But anyway, uh, I digress. So now, uh, here as Oscar season approaches and we celebrate the cinema of 2021, Johnny Greenwood's uh, scoring side hustle has eventually, uh, evidently turned into a full-blown gig. Uh, Greenwood has not one, not two, but three new film scores out there. You may hear more about each of these films. The Power of the Dog, Spencer, and yes, Anderson's latest flick, Licorice Pizza, as we wind into the spring. Judging by the critical love uh, uh, each uh, film uh, is getting, and on how surprisingly strong and varied uh, Greenwood's results are, it looks like Hans Zimmer might have some high-level competition in the film composer rock star stratosphere. Uh, the best of these scores accompanies The Power of the Dog. Uh, if you haven't seen this film, Arturo, and anybody else, uh, check it out on Netflix. It's actually yeah. surprisingly pretty good. Uh, this is Jane Campion's adapted uh, tale of a 1920s ranching family in Wyoming. And the film is not actually as Brokeback Mountain-esque as it seems as the story unfolds. Uh, Greenwood's compositions here are minimalist, brooding, and at times outright spooky. Uh, It features the bass end of the string section prominently, uh, not just on cellos, but also on violas and violins, which makes for uh, not something you hear every day. Let's just put it that way. Uh, at other points, there are sprinkling old-school tack pianos that take the lead. And then there are some flat-out weird-ass horn parts in there as well. Uh, some of this may remind you vaguely of that score from There Will Be Blood, 
which I guess can also be classified as a strange Western. Uh, but the resemblance is superficial. Uh, this one stays icy and detached, uh, which befits the uh, misleading and evasive cruelty portrayed in Benedict, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's lead performance. Uh, you'll be hearing more about that because he's probably a shoe in to win Best Actor uh, this year. Uh, ultimately, I think the score to The Power of the Dog is Greenwood's second best effort to date. Uh, the other two scores I mentioned uh, don't merit quite as much love. Spencer is an obviously mainstream-minded soundtrack to an obviously mainstream-minded film, which is marked by an obviously mainstream-minded performance by Kristen Stewart as the dearly departed Princess Diana. Uh, the music here is fuller, more traditional, more rollicking, and also pretty sly in that he, uh, Greenwood, brings harpsichord, winwoods, lush string quartets, and organs into the mix to match the kind of pretension that tends to come in mind when we think of the British royal family. Uh, Licorice uh, Pizza, meanwhile, puts Greenwood in the unusual position in an Anderson film of not doing a whole lot, other than providing some lovely harp, string, and acoustic guitar motifs to surround Anderson's most popular music-inspired movies since Boogie Nights and Magnolia way back when. I will give Greenwood this, though. Uh, if the film is supposed to be a 1973 nostalgia trip, then Greenwood's music here could have been the backing for any kind of cheesy Streisand or Roberta Flack ballad. So there we have it, folks. <laughs> yeah, maybe the first time we'll ever hear Radiohead connected with Barbara Streisand. <laughs> or, or, or Roberta Flack, you know. So here we have. So, so the guy who's playing in tunings on the Benz and OK Computer uh, revitalized, if not revolutionized, guitar rock is now an avant-garde maestro of the big screen. Uh, <laughs> with this trio of work out there now, Greenwood is poised to join the Hollywood A-list. Get used to seeing his name in the credits a whole lot more. The end. Yeah, um, many, many episodes ago last year, in fact, our second episode, Kill the Sacred Cows, uh, Chris and I, uh, you folks may or may not remember, we went to bat, um, slamming down uh, critically acclaimed artists that we think aren't worth near uh, the reverential treatment that they get. Um, I, my five entries and choices were Radiohead's post-amnesiac output. So I love Radiohead up until you know the, the mid-noughts. Um, Bjork, post-post. And of course, what I call the holy trinity of overrated suckitude, Sid Barrett, Scott Walker, and Kate Bush. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm not, it's not surprising that Greenwood is occupying himself with film scores. Obviously, he loves doing it. But when you've been as creatively bankrupt as Tom York has been for the past decade and a half, yeah. <laughs> it's probably yeah. best that Greenwood does... It's best, better best, it's best that Greenwood does this kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, absolutely. And that, and that, and that's what I, I'm, I'm saying is that like, at least Greenwood is still have, has the inspiration and, uh, you know, some of the stuff Rick really, really works. Uh, actually like there's a double harpsichord thing on, uh, the Spencer soundtrack that kind of rocks. Uh, but you know, right. power of the dog is just, it's very befitting of the sort of, um, it's a, it's like the smallest, uh, the, the the movie it is, it's like kind of the smallest 
great ex- Western expanse movie imaginable that you get that, <laughs> but it, it's, it's a tale of, uh, mean, mean people and who suffer, uh, the pangs of other mean people and sort of uh, toxic masculinity. And so I think the score sort of uh, befits that, that sort of uh, detachment and uh, those types of things. So Greenwood's got a talent for this kind of thing. And so uh, with that said, uh, we now leave uh, the parallel universe. Uh, That was a a pretty uh, good, uh, uh, like you said, uh, there was a yin and a yang that were both very well explained. Uh, how about that? And now <laughs> we uh, segue into the uh, main meat of this uh, here sandwich uh, this week. We uh, are, like we said, we're going to be uh, defending uh, St. Anger, uh, which is the rare album that Arturo and I both love and both revere and are both contrarian about. Uh, yes. And not obnoxiously so. I think I think we're right about all this. So Arturo, oh, absolutely. Arturo, yeah. set us set us up. Yeah. Well, four episodes ago, we started a new series called "In Defense of," in which we take a certain band slash artist or an album by a band slash artist that is either critically derided or commercially ignored or both, and we do our best to defend them and make the case why they are worth listening to. No, this is not revisionist history bullshit. As Chris alludes to uh, every week in our or every episode in our slogan and mission statement, we are not here for hot takes and unpopular controversial opinions just for the sake of drawing attention. We mean what we say and we say what we mean. And we do indeed mean it when we say Metallica's album, St. Anger, from 2003, is one of the most underrated fucking albums of all time. In fact... We'll take it a step further. I think it's one of Metallica's five best albums, period. Um, When this album came out in the spring of 03, initial reviews were positive, but over time, the band's fan base and hardcore metalheads, who are some of the most obnoxious fans in the world, uh, (laughs) expressed extreme displeasure with the album, flooding the internet and blog sites with all kinds of vitriol. Remember, this was before social media, about how terrible the songs were and how terrible the production was. It wasn't long before the music critic consensus turned against the album as well, with several reviews condemning it as harshly as many of Metallica's fans had. Um, Before I go further, Chris, you're a former music journalist. Can you cite us some quotes from some of the very unnecessarily negative St. Anger reviews from back in the day. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, let me uh, read you a real piece of crap uh, <laughs> to, to, to set this up. So, uh, Pitchfork. Uh, oh, back God, in- of course, Pitchfork. Fuckers. Yeah, well, the thing about Pitchfork is not only was it a bad review, but it was a really strange and ridiculous attempt at... Um, what was this even going for satire uh yeah. some kind some kind of like uh it's some kind of like you know hipster uh fantasia or uh, who who the hell knows what was going into this mind i mean god bless pitchfork for at least having the freedom to to uh, publish this bullshit yeah. but anyway the whole, so the whole concept is uh this guy is an archaeologist in the future or he's uh you, you know, he's supposedly uh, steeping St. Anger 
back in the 1850s for some bizarre reason, which, uh, so anyway, let me just read this. This is just part of it. I don't even need to set it up anymore. This is just kind of absurd. He says, uh, if only Marx, Karl Marx, had lived to see the, uh, the sides flip over a dwindling battle line. For the first time, a technological advance, MP3s and digital downloading spelled victory for the proletariat. File sharing had become an anti-established, as anti-establishment as Marx had envisioned, metal sounding. And Metallica, Marx's metal champion, had dropped an iron firewall between their music and their fans, who, despite their revolutionary ripping, were, for the most part, bourgeoisie boys choosing bands based on how the logos looked, uh, protractor scratched into study hall desks. We kibbutz workers, who lived here by choice, manufacturing Metallica CDs, facing time in the lightness in the lightless cell, if found touching or experiencing sound anger, sane anger, before its shipping date. Yet James Hetfield seemed to always sing about being locked inside that lightless cell as a badge of honor. Irony upon irony upon irony. Then again, Marx and Engels did not uh, did grow their beards back and move on to more ambitious projects. And uh, later on, he uh, he says. Pro Tools have never had never been metal. Pro Tools never snorted ants up his firewire from the side of the pool while urinating down a woman's dress. Pro Tools never inserted the sound of a chainsaw into the opening of black metal off the album Black Metal. Pro Tools had never burned churches in Norway, and yet Pro Tools had a major hand in assembling both Madonna's American Life and Frantic. Okay, what a bunch of gibberish, but yeah, that, that just kind of, yeah, it gives you a, a glimpse as to a couple of the uh, criticisms of this album that we'll, we'll get into here shortly. Yeah. Well, needless to say, by the end of this episode, my or our fellow curmudgeonly listeners, Chris, who's also a lawyer, and I will provide a rock solid case as to why St. Anger is actually a terrific album possibly the most unique and original in Metallica's catalog, and why anyone who's a heavy metal fan needs to block out all the negative press the album has gotten over over the years and revisit it with fresh ears. In short, St. Anger represents the last time, this is important, the last time Metallica actually endeavored to make music that was vital, inventive, and original. They've been absolutely awful after that. From 2008 onward, they've just been recycling just a parody of themselves. Yes, it still sounds great, maybe even better today. It rocks beyond belief, and it is an underrated all-time classic. There's always a good time to be found within the Curmudgeon Rock Report's curmudgeonly community. That is our invite-only private Facebook group that Arturo and I launched in December. So far, it's been a spirited romp through this podcast's decidedly bent worldview, and as it turns out, through those of our members as well. Now, is Iron Maiden a good example of a band that blended musel mastery and pop accessibility to an acceptable degree? Well, one of our members sure thinks so, and we gave him the safe space to do it, damn it. If bold opinions and thoughts and passionate defenses of rock and roll are your jam, then the Curmudgeon Rock Report's curmudgeonly community is for you. 
Come find us, and we will probably let you in. To give you an idea of the path of St. Anger in recent years, um, there has been a rise of damning with faint praise, and we're going to go beyond that. But let me uh, give you a really uh, insightful uh, nugget of where things may stand now. Uh, this is an Amazon customer review uh, that ran with the St. Anger page from last year. And this reads, while it's true that you can polish a turd all day and it's still a turd, you can, you can however, leave a turd alone long enough and it eventually ceases to stink. Uh, that's what happened here. Initially, this album was a shock because of how bad it sounded and how different it was from everything else they did. After listening a couple of times, I threw it out. Not long ago, I saw it for a low price and decided to try it again. After quite a lot of years, I now have an appreciation for this. A lot of songs on here are actually not bad songs at all. I can enjoy it now for what it was. A screwed up, ugly statement from a screwed up, ugly, uh, and ugly time for the band. The purging of the poison that was slowly killing the monster of Metallica. Uh, me personally... I've always agreed with a line from Barry Walter's review of St. Anger for Rolling Stone in 2003. It's a rush to be pummeled by this group again. Uh, that's certainly how I felt back when I first heard these 11 songs in 75 minutes, now 19 years ago, for we are old, and again when I listened to it an hour before we roll tape on this episode. Uh, with that said, Arturo. Let's start destroying some of the dumbass myths that surrounded St. Anger at the time of its release and in the years that immediately followed. Yes, five myths and what we think are bullshit myths about St. Anger. And we're going to start taking them down. The first one, that the drum sound was terrible. That's a myth. Chris, what do you have to say about the drums on St. Anger? Okay, uh... Well, let me summarize it by saying I fucking love them. Uh, yeah. I mean, for for I guess the simplest thing you can say is uh, heavy metal uh, was intended as a music to piss off your parents. It uh, fell into the rock and roll tradition uh, that it's supposed to be fresh, it's supposed to be weird, and it's supposed to uh, it's supposed to scare people of of a certain age. And I think the drum sound was a huge uh, part of that. Um, it's metal as fuck. And it really is the result of a happy accident. Uh, well, depending on the perspective, uh, Lars uh, has said that uh, he, while they were uh, in the middle of uh, doing, uh, working on Frantic, which is the, op the wonderful uh, opening track on this record, uh, he forgot to attach the snare on a snare drum. And so what that left it, uh, that left it exposed to being tinny. Uh, you didn't get that, uh, the acoustics to it. And it was like, basically like banging on a trash can. Uh, and when they played it back, they said, Hey, you know what? That's pretty cool. Uh, and they decided that they were going to stick with that. And apparently Lars uh, stuck to his guns. So Bob Rock, uh, two years ago in an uh, interview with Loudwire, he actually it was a podcast that Loudwire uh, uh, sponsors. Uh, he was uh, talking about uh, this 
and he tells a story about uh, while they're doing the album, they uh, they have a, a long established clubhouse, uh, which I guess is um, uh, a place in Oakland that dates back to the Cliff Burton days before Cliff Burton died, and uh, he uh, had the drums set up in a in a certain way. Uh, Bob Rock was like, "Fuck that! Why not just?" try to fool around some other drums and try to figure it out and, uh, you know, come up with something different. And in the midst of this, uh, you know, Lars was like, Hey, you know, hand me a snare drum. And he just detached the, the snare and came up with that. And I think the, the goal was to reenact, uh, the sound that they would get when they were jamming in that clubhouse where it, you know, everything was bald and raw and it was just them just rocking the fuck out without any uh, studio tricks. So, uh, and you get that and we'll talk about it. The, uh, the wonderful uh, documentary, uh, some kind of monster, uh, they get into this, the beginning of it, they established the whole concept is it's supposed to be like four guys jamming in a garage and just sort of getting back to basics. And so I think it was part of that, but boy, does it work? Like, I love like dirty window. I mean, dirty window is just like, I mean, that is just metal as a motherfucker. I mean, just, I mean, literally it does sound like they're just banging on pots and pans and, and trash cans and all of that. It just, you know, and it sets up a kick-ass riff and it's just an exercise in pure ass metal. Yeah. Um, listen, people like to complain about the drum sound here. Um, Back in 1988, Metallica put out one of their classic albums and just and Justice for All, which is a great album, but it's like great music produced very poorly. And the drum sound on and Justice for All is way fucking worse than the drum sound on Saint Anger. Yeah, it's, it's I thin. Know. It's thin. It's compressed. It's tinny. Chris, Chris, tell me if you can if you can hear this. Can you hear that? Yeah. Okay, that, that that's the sound of a pen tapping my my hand. Drums are not supposed to sound like that. That's what they sound like on Injustice for All. Yeah, uh, all all the way through it. Like when you listen to Blackened, it's like there's no depth, and it again, it is like it is like clacks. It is like clicks, or it's almost like he's uh, he's got paper, and he's like yeah. bang, he's like banging on paper, which is especially offensive considering they did that bullshit where they hazed. Jason Newstead and turned his bass all the way down. Just so you so could stupid. barely hear it. It was, it was stupid. So uh, I don't know. I might take it to the extreme and say that this album might actually be a little bit better than Injustice for All. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly more focused. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's pulverizing. It arguably is too long at 75 minutes. Uh, so what? It's, it's definitely more consistent and, uh, it may not have the highs, but right. it's, I mean, it's, it's totally, it's definitely original. And Justice for All at that point, they had a formula that they had done two records in a row and they were sticking to the formula. The only difference being is they no longer had Cliff Burton, so it didn't quite yeah. work as well. So, right. so anyway, uh, yeah. So these drums, uh, give me the trash cans all day. I'll take them. Absolutely. Awesome and also, and also his, his playing, uh, Ulrich's playing on this. Ulrich, sorry, Ulrich's playing on this. Uh, it's virtuosic. It's probably oh, yeah. the most skilled drumming of his entire career. I mean, oh, yeah. get get past the trash can sound. 
what he's actually doing on the drum kit is probably better than anything he's done on any Metallica album. Yeah, well, certainly the best since Ride the Lightning. And he brought yeah, he, sure. he, he brought back the double the double bass uh, the double bass kick, right. uh, which he hadn't really done since then. And so yeah, it's uh, it's his most athletic drumming. And you know, there's some real yeah, the, just the. You know, a lot of people accuse Lars Ulrich of, uh, you know, not being able to keep time with a watch. Uh, yeah. Fuck that. He does yeah, that and shit. more. Does, does that, that and more yeah. on this record. So, uh, yeah. oh, and uh, one other comment to make. Uh, Rock in that same interview with Loudwire, uh, he also, uh, he made an interesting comment where he said that he kind of likened and he compared what they did with the drums with what U2 was doing on Octone Baby. Yeah, uh, good comparison. Yeah, which is sort of, you know, kind of... Uh, no, one, was, no one complains about the drums on Octone Baby. Yeah, where they're very industrial, and it's basically half of it is drum machines. Right. And But it's very industrial, and the bass is actually, like, uh, higher in the mix, you know? Yeah. It's, so it's kind of this weird mix of, like, electronicized drums that are kind of buried. Uh, right. So anyway, uh, but no, nobody complains about that shit. Uh, yeah. but it's probably just metal prejudice, you know, of course, which leads us to, to, uh, myth number two about St. Anger that the lack of guitar solos detracted from the album. All right. Let me say, let me say this. Uh, I like as much as I like early Metallica, uh, my biggest complaint of early Metallica is Kirk Hammett and his solos. He's a great guitar player. No one's going to doubt that Kirk Hammett fantastic guitar player but early metallica's guitar solos like ride the lightning master of puppets even going into uh and justice for all even going into a little bit into the black album they all kind of sound the same it all sounds like wayne's world and different variations of wayne's world that's every yeah. Kirk Hammett guitar solo in, or most 90% of his guitar solos in early Metallica. All right. Take away the guitar solos may not be a bad idea <laughs> for Metallica. And yeah. I think those kinds of like traditional, typical heavy metal guitar soloing would have really not fit on St. Anger for that kind of focused album. That oh, they were oh doing not, there. not, not at all. I mean, look, Hammett, there's some stuff in there and it really kind of depended on the song and, and, you know, kind of what they were doing uh, with the tempos, you know, some of them were just kind of there to be there. But then, you know, you do have some classic stuff like the uh, the middle of Ride the Lightning is just incredible. Sure. Uh, the soloing in the middle of Master of Puppets, you know, sort of the um, uh, the the beautiful uh, middle part. Uh, right. There's actually some great stuff on like Orion, obviously, you know, uh, one. And so like the obvious stuff. It's just right. awesome. But like you said, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's wasted. And and so the here's the reason that there's no solos on this record. Where the hell are you going to put them yeah. uh, at, without them sounding like shit? I mean, really? I mean, OK, maybe you could have put one on Sweet Amber. Uh, maybe you could have put one on Frantic. Uh, and maybe you could have put one on uh, Dirty Window. Uh, but they still would have been uh, forced. Uh, and so putting solos on this would have been the equivalent of putting 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag. Right. Uh, it, you know, they just weren't necessary. And uh, what I love is like people would bitch about that. Uh, if they watched some kind of monster, there's a section in there where, you know, they tried to do it. They tried to, 
to fit it in. And then Hammett is like, well, you know, I mean, look, it doesn't work. And he even has the self-consciousness to say, well, you know, people are going to say like we're being trendy because of all this new metal shit and all this corn and sort of, well, I mean, systems, uh, system of a down didn't have traditional solos. It had lead lines. Right. And I think that maybe there was that, but he's like, you know what? Fuck it. You know, I mean, we've never been about trends and we're going to make this work. And it's not like I'm doing nothing, which coincidentally, uh, I would say that, um, this is right there with uh, Master of Puppets and probably exceeds it as a headphone record. Yeah. Uh, you really can't appreciate the interaction between Hetfield and Hammett unless you have it on headphones. There's some extraordinary stuff going on as far as, sure. you know, this the, the textured stuff and this sort of the pastiche, I guess you can call it, or the, the, the kind of the, uh, the layering of what they're doing. And like, you know, some subtle stuff. I mean, even, you know, like uh, the little uh, 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 slide lick that starts Sweet Amber. And yeah. even if even if you listen to Frantic, uh, just the the interplay of of the two uh, rhythm guitars and which also is coincidentally like it's which makes people full of shit when they say this. That is something that they fucking done their entire catalog. Yes. If you, if you go back to Master of Puppets, there's all kinds of that shit on there. Yeah. Like like ma like Master of Puppets does that. I mean, it's yeah. like just wonderful uh tandem rhythm guitar playing for most of it. Right. You know? So uh so I guess that's my my spiel on that. All right. Now, myth number 3 about Saint Anger. Um and this one is the one that's most personal for me. Uh number 3 that the psychotherapy-inspired lyrics were shit. All right, now let me shit on this myth. Um, I'm speaking as someone who, I will admit, my life was saved by psychotherapy, um, both in individual sessions and in group therapy sessions. Uh, when I was living in New York City for a long time, I went to therapy, and it saved me. Uh, it really was the, one of the best things I ever did in my life. and. Um, and of course, the documentary, uh, Some Kind of Monster, brilliant documentary. If you people out there have listening, haven't seen it, watch it. It's just, it's really, really good. Um, a band going through psychotherapy is not a weakness. It's a strength, okay? Yes. It, takes, it takes courage to admit that you're fucked up. And it takes courage to try and fix it. And to do it the way Metallica at the time tried was brave okay um the reasons that some people have given for disliking the film that it's too candid it's too open it's too emotional etc it's exactly why the fucking movie is great those are the reasons why it's good because it's bold no band no other band in rock history has gone to this length to open themselves up in front of the camera and in front of their fans you know, um, it, it's uh, the yeah, the album stylistically is a bold departure, but also the movie they made to 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 uh, to, to, to basically give fans a, a bit of a context before they listen to the album. That's pretty brave, too. And just go, them going through psychotherapy is brave. They should be applauded for that. They shouldn't be criticized for it. And frankly, this, the therapy saved them. It really kept the band together, yeah. um, this, despite how difficult the therapy sessions were. Another yeah. thing to keep another thing to keep in mind: several of the lyrics 
on this album were written before Hetfield's uh, stint in alcohol rehab. Uh, his is basically it's subconsciousness, his scre- subconscious is screaming out, and him going to rehab plus the therapy that he did basically give the lyrics this overt, tangible meaning behind them. Um, even though like a lot of the lyrics were pre-therapy, it's clearly his subconscious talking. And uh, yeah. that subconscious came out in his alcohol rehab um, and in his therapy. Um, listen, man, 20 plus years is a lot for a band to be together. Uh, that plus their lack of communication skills led to their issues um, their issues getting along and all these issues building up. They had to go to therapy, man. They needed to. Yeah, you know? uh, they really had kind of uh, lost uh, their identity uh, at yeah. this at this point. And, you know, look, I honestly, I usually hate it when a band is like, oh, you know, we went into the studio with nothing. And then it just right. organically all came together because 90% right. of the time, uh, the results are just real horseshit. Uh, see No Line on the Horizon by U2 uh, as, a, <laughs> as a shining monument to this. Uh here it works only because this album uh, w- would not exist if not for it. And uh, for the reasons that uh, Arturo uh, stated, because they were going for that therapy, they had to work out those things. And essentially the main theme of this record, it's kind of uh, a Hetfield psyche. It's about learning how to lose control and be okay with it. Because, uh, you know, many times they say through the record that they used to have these rules. Uh, Hetfield would write all the lyrics and no one could question them. Uh, you know, Kirk Hammett would come in and play exactly what they told him to play and all of this. And I think they realized with what they were going through at that point where they had uh, they were in the middle of suing Napster, which is one of the dumbest uh, PR moves for any, right. you know. Uh, band ever. I understand what they were trying to do, but it just uh, uh, really got them shit on for years. Uh, Jason Newstead, their bassist, uh, quit uh, for uh, lots of reasons. Uh, number one reason being is that he got involved in a side project band and Hetfield uh, was trying, again, trying to control him and, and cock block him on that. And Newstead said, nope, uh, I'm taking off. Uh, and, and so and, and then the alcohol is getting there. And to me, the most stunning moment of some kind of monster is they're in a session with Phil Toll, uh, who is their therapist. Uh, his background is uh, he worked with uh, Chicago uh, gang members as far as reconciliation. Uh, he also was brought in as a performance coach slash uh, therapist for the uh, the Rams team that won the Super Bowl. Uh he also was brought in to try to save Rage Against the Machine uh, uh, in the same kind of way. It didn't work. Uh, and But he had this way of uh, pointing out with, uh, with Hetfield uh, being kind of scared of giving up that control, scared of the process, uh, kind of scared of now that Jason Newstead's gone, what's happening, and scared of the cameras and the booms. You know, the boom mics that were in the room and feeling like he was on top uh, of all of this. And uh, and Phil Toll is like saying, well, it sounds like your life is dominated by fear. And fear is what is, is controlling this and fear is what needs to come out. And you get this look on, on uh, uh, Hetfield's face where he's like, oh, shit, he's right. 
And yeah. I, and then I think it's like a week later that he goes to rehabs. And so what you can say is, is that the psychotherapy opened enough and triggered Hetfield to actually go uh, to rehab and, you know, spend that time with his family and clean himself up and, and, and all of that. But at the same time, even when he comes back, he's like on this four hour a day schedule and still trying right. to, you know, control everything and, and all of that. And so a lot of the lyrics uh, kind of come from that. Uh, some kind of monsters, like the one complete song they did before uh, he went to rehab. And like Arturo said, you know, I'm, I've always loved the lyric. Uh, this is the face that stones you cold. Uh, this is the moment that needs to breathe. Uh, these are the claws that scratch these wounds. This is the pain that never leaves. Right. Uh, and then probably the single most stunning moment on the record, which I love, and like the most metal thing in the world is uh, whispering, not only do I know the answer, and then screaming, I don't even know what the question is Yeah, uh, from my world. I mean, that's just stunning. Uh, so... Yeah, no, you're right. I think that the, psych- the psychotherapy, uh, the world needed to see how this how this works. Uh, yeah. Most disappointing moment in the mil- in the film is because they do an interview with Jason Newstead, where he says that uh, their decision to bring in Phil Toll was quote really fucking lame. Um, and so, I mean, the- here's here's my thing on that. Okay, on one hand, Newstead is right. Because they shouldn't need a therapist because of how well they know each other. But he's wrong in that the Hetfield-Ulrich impasse had gotten so bad that they really needed a therapist. And uh, especially with those two, you know, maybe not not from Newstead's perspective, maybe not from Hammett's perspective. But those two really needed a therapist. Although although Hammett went along with it, though. I mean, Hammett, I think, understood... Sure. That, you know, that there was something healthy to be had from that. And honestly, I think Hammett loved it because they started taking him more seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and realized he had a lot to contribute with, you know, the, the Buddhism and uh, some of the stuff right. that, uh, that made it uh, that made it uh, onto the record. And, and of course, J- Jason Newstead calling it lame is kind of ironic because one of the reasons they did it was because of uh, the control issues that, yeah, you know, Ulrich was devastated that Hetfield ran Newstead out of the band because yeah. of because of his fear of losing control with this idea. Right. That, you know, he even uh, Hetfield even says it in the film, like afterwards, it's like he's sober. He's like, yeah, in retrospect, I think I was just terrified of losing Metallica and yeah. Newstead uh, fearing off and doing his own thing might cut into that. So, uh, yeah, very brave. Um it's it's really astonishing that that the these guys actually opened themselves to doing it and they stuck yeah. with it. So I uh, kind of wish you two would have done something like this. Yeah, which w- would be really really interesting. Imagine if they had like done this for like Octung Baby uh, or yeah. well actually No Line on the Horizon so that they could actually get back to making non shitty music. Yeah. All right, back to the myths with two more to go. Yes, myth myth number four about Saint Anger. That they were going for a new metal sound. Now, maybe yes, they kind of, sort of were, but that criti- that that accusation of that they were going for a new metal sound has um, the implicit message that 
the sound they were going for sucked because they were going for new metal. Here's the thing. Neither Linkin Park nor Limp Biscuit ever did anything as savage as as Saint Anger. Um Corn Corn approached that level of savagery, but those guys aren't near the songwriters that Hetfield and Ulrich were. Yeah. Uh, lyrically, um my god, Lincoln bands like Linkin Park and Paramore, you can pretty much take their lyrics like Eh, I'm so sad. I hate myself. I don't know why. Eh, just juvenile crap. The lyrics on this album are not juvenile. They're no. not juvenile new metal. These are adults who have come from the other end of addiction and therapy, and are and and the lyrics are kind of witty actually for Metallica, which is unusual for yeah. them. That feels not known for his wit. There's yeah. a wit and kind of a sly humor to a lot of the lyrics on this album. Yeah. Uh, and then again, the music, like, come on, there's no new metal band that, that, that sound, that sounds as savage and as powerful and as primitive and just overwhelmingly original with the, the riffs are really original on this album. You don't, th- th- there is no precedent in Metallica's discography for the kind of riffage that St. Anger has. Yeah. I mean, the whole new metal thing. Yeah, definitely. It was bullshit because, uh, you know, that started off, I mean, they were looking to do a Metallica record and they had, you know, they had these riffs and a lot of that criticism uh, really comes from this idea that they were using Pro Tools. And right. so this idea that somehow the grooves were uh, manufactured and uh, stitched together. And, you know, o- Ulrich actually talks about that in the film. He says, hey, you know, this is great because we get to take a three hour jam session and we get to like you know, take the greatest, you know, the, the best parts of it, and stitch it together. Well, why fucking not? You know, this idea that yeah. they, it, this nonsense that it was processed and somehow it's a bad record. Uh, no, I mean, there's a lot of pro- like we keep talking about you, too. You taught you two's records probably since like at least Octung Baby have all been processed as shit, you know, and a lot of this stuff. And so just because there's a lot of studio trickery in something doesn't mean that it's inauthentic. And so there was this metal ethos that, uh, that just because, you know, you had those established live grooves and you had that pocket and you could play those things, uh, live. Yeah. I mean, they could do it with these songs too. Uh, but it was just much more, um, intricate and much more, uh, yeah. Well, well, I guess let's just put it this way. Uh, the technology at the time was brand new. Uh, why the fuck wouldn't they use it? Right. I mean, I, yeah. I think that, I think that's the more uh, the more practical answer. And yeah, look the no the new metal thing. Yeah, oh, look, okay, so maybe they were worried about they weren't worried about competing, but they're at that point where they're still. Yeah, I think there is some fear of losing their fans, and you know they want to they want to do something bold, and boy did they do it. Uh, and it wasn't following the crowd. It was following their instincts and their, right. th- this record came out of their instincts and it came out of, again, it was courage, uh, that to be able to do that, to sort of eschew their formula and, and rebuild themselves. And so I think it was just coincidental. And honestly, it's kind of fucking lame because by 2003, new metal was basically over, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of. I mean, you know, I mean, Limp Biscuit always sucked, but <laughs> even Limp Biscuit fans will admit that by 03 they were done. <laughs> yeah, and Corn was basically done by then. E- even though I love Untouchables from 02, 
I think that's their best record. They were done. Uh, and so even like, you know, the other bands like POD, they were done, uh, you know, like whatever, uh, theory of a dead man. So like what you started to get is you started to get like new, new, new metal bands that were really terrible. The, you know? the, the, the only two new metal bands that survived past the early noughties was basically Lincoln, were basically Lincoln Park and System of a Down and, and System of a Down were the only good one. <laughs> Well, and, and, and Slipknot. Uh, Slipknot is actually, of all those bands, they're the ones that are really, truly still going. Uh, yeah. And again, you know, Slipknot has been terrible for 10 years, but they had some good records. And, you know, obviously I covered Iowa in one of our vault segments a while back. And uh, so, you know, there was some, some stuff there. But even that album, I mean, New Metal is insulting because that's just a fucking metal record. To me, if it rocks balls, it has original originality and it has that, uh, rawness to the bone and that sort of uh, what what would you call it? like tortured anger? If it's yeah. if it's got that, it's a fucking metal record, you know. All so. right, now the the fifth and last uh, myth about Saint Anger that the album was a career killer. Now this is the dumbest bullshit of all. Yeah. Um. Listen, up until the pandemic, all right, and uh, when they hit in twenty twenty. Metallica were still selling out arenas and stadiums all over the world. Uh, okay, St. Anger did not kill their career. Now, what you can say is that uh, St. Anger killed Metallica as a contemporary modern rock radio thing. All right. And I guess maybe you can say that. But by the time St. Anger came out, they were already 20 years into their career. Yeah. Um, they were they were already on a trajectory of becoming classic rock, okay. Yeah. Uh, a, a Saint Anger wasn't going to do anything to that. So, yeah. um, no, commercially they were still selling out arenas all over the world, and they were already on their way to being a classic rock band that weren't going to have modern rock hits anymore. So, yeah, but, but but also if you think about it. Uh, They've probably made more money even the last 18 years than they did in the 18 years pre, uh, prior to it. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, because they have uh, they tour all the time. Uh, after this record, they toured non-stop world tour for right. two years. Yeah. Uh, they uh, one of the more enjoyable parts of some kind of monster is the uh, the bassist auditions where. Yeah. There's only one guy who could play the for whom the bell tolls part. And he's the one that got the job. And that's right. Rob, Rob Trujillo. Yeah. Who's a freaky looking dude, but an awesome bass player. I wouldn't yeah. put he's not quite Cliff Burton, but he's close. And, right. you know, he was with suicidal tendencies. And, uh, you know, uh, he worked with uh, what's his face there, Mike Muir a lot. Right. But uh, so they got that out of it. Uh, you know, they, they moved on from Phil Toll and they uh, right. established themselves. I mean, they still uh, do, uh, you know, phenomenal business. Uh, they granted, I mean, I will say it's not a career killer, but they've done two records uh, since then. Uh, I guess maybe they took the critical or the fan repudiationist record, maybe a little personally, and uh, they went to strive uh, to recapture the magic of the pre-black album records. Yeah. And so, you know, you get, uh, what is it? Uh, death magnetic, uh, right. from 2008, which is Rick Rubin, uh, producing as a piece of shit. And then yeah. you get the much, much awful, awful yeah, record, 
you get the much, much, much better hardwired to self-destruct. Uh, that is a good record. Uh, yes, they're still going for, uh, hey, remember when we used to do this kind of stuff? And so it's um, it, it, it's not exactly them breaking new ground. Uh, I think that St. Anger was kind of the end of the line for them as far as yeah. uh, creative leaps. But no, it did not kill their career. And as we've said, uh, the damn thing is making a comeback. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, even at the time, I, you know, you, you say it wasn't a career killer. Like all the places that you would expect uh, loved uh, uh, this record, like you know, Rolling Stone, Spin, All Music, uh, uh, all those places. The funny part is, is a lot of the places that hated it are all out of business. And, yep. you know, you go to Metacritic.com, which I love. Uh, as an aggregation site, you go to click on the reviews, the the links to all the bad reviews, and all those places are out of business. Yeah, uh, with the exception of Pitchfork. Pitchfork uh, was the bottom of the uh, of the thing. I do want to read uh, one segment of a um, uh, which is kind of a uh, a perfect kind of okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, the defense of the record. This was from Blabbermouth.net. Uh, which was a pretty popular blog site for a while back in that period. And uh, uh, they write, uh, uh, don't, the uh, writers only uh, identified as DK, uh, DK rock on. Uh, but it says, uh, the already notorious drum sound does come remarkably close to sounding like the ring of a garbage can cover while guitars rise and fall in the mix. Crisp and precise one moment, muddy and distorted the next. There are audible miscues and ragged edges. James Hetfield's voice is dry and unproduced, cracking, not hitting notes, and sometimes straining. There are moments in the 75-minute running time when any one of these things or a combination of them is actively annoying or distracting. Yet there's this is almost and this is also an almost unrelentingly heavy album. An in-your-face, non-conformist, uncommercial recording that sounds like virtually nothing else produced by a rock band in this young century. As bizarre as this sounds, only the white stripes come close in terms of this kind of vibe that St. Anger puts across. And that's not to say that St. Anger sounds anything like Elephant. Uh, I could hear millions of jaws dropping there for a minute. Uh, <laughs> after, after the last miserable few years of corporate new metal clones, trend-driven model-fucking garage rock posers and regurgitating death metal wannabes, Metallica has made an album that flies in the face of all conventional expectations of heavy rock music in 2003. Ah, that's pretty yeah. good. That's, um, that is pretty good. It's mixed. Compared, com got compared to the White Stripes. That's good. Yeah, I was going to say. So, yep, it, it, it's a bizarre record, but it definitely uh, deserves uh, its respect. On this episode... Chris and I defended and praised the grossly underrated album St. Anger by Metallica. Before that episode, we gave praise to the terminally underrated Richard and Linda Thompson, whose most celebrated album is 1974's I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight. And, as our loyal curmudgeonly listeners would know, way back in our eighth episode, we talked about how underratedly great 1974 was in music, or for music. Well, 
We're taking that theme of underrated to a higher gear and extending it to an entire decade. The 1970s were arguably the second most important musical decade of the 20th century, the 1960s being the first, and music geeks are well aware of all the classic, genre-defining albums of that era. So, us curmudgeons will take a different tack, as we will present, without a doubt, the 10 most underrated albums of the 1970s. These are the ones people should be still talking about as seminal, important, and influential. Tune in as we go back to a countdown format for the next episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. All right. Now, folks, we will do our curmudgeonly track-by-track breakdown of the songs on St. Anger. Um, before we'll do that, let me say a few things. First, uh, Chris and I, we both love this album, but we differ on some of the songs. So it's going to be interesting to see how we uh, uh, go into each track. Okay. And before we go into it, um, we already talked about the movie, the documentary, Some Kind of Monster, which is uh, uh, the, about the making of this album and the, the issues they were going through. Um, Chris, give us a little bit about the background and the making of this album for those people who have never watched or never seen Some Kind of Monster. Okay, uh, so uh, just real quick. So, uh, yes, this was seen... Uh, they had come off kind of a weird streak where they had done a, a, a covers album. Uh, they had alienated. Shot. Yeah. Uh, not, not, not entirely. There was some interesting stuff on that. Um, that kind of half and half on that. Again, they had run off Jason Newstead. They were suing Napster. Uh, they were burned out because they had been on the road for so long. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, Hetfield was deeply into the sauce and, uh, and, Lars was basically in kind of a don't give a fuck uh, laissez-faire mode at this point. And so what they wanted to do, and it was Bob Rock's idea, they were going to create a makeshift studio. And it was going to be, it was in the Presidio in the Bay Area. It was like an old warehouse. And so they brought in like portable studios. And the idea is it was just going to be the four of them just jamming out. Or or the three of them at this point was Bob Rock on bass. And they were going to sit there and Phil Toll was already involved and they were going to sit there and just sort of, uh, you know, kind of organically jam out this thing. The idea was they, they were going to start with nothing and come out with something awesome. Uh, and so they're doing uh, this. Uh, some kind of monster comes out of this uh, out of this period. Uh, well, as we said, Hetfield uh, blows a gasket uh, with Lars. And checks himself into rehab. He is gone for the majority. Of, it was almost, I think it was little less than a year. Uh, comes back. He's on a four-hour restriction uh, for most of this. Uh, by this time, they had actually built themselves a real studio uh, called HQ. Uh, and, you know, they, they go through it. And, again, it's, it's all communally written. Uh, Kirk, Kirk Hammett and Bob Rock are deeply involved in the writing of this record. In a couple of instances, Phil Toll uh, contributes uh, a line or two. And a lot of it is just this raw uh, Hetfield screaming into the mic and just sort of just trying and just sort of inventing uh, this uh, on the fly. Uh, and 
yeah, they come up with this. We already talked about the snare drum, but that's essentially the the background of it. Is you have a band in a bad place that's deciding we're going to quote quote unquote get back to basics, and miraculously, probably because of Phil Toll and probably because Hetfield went to rehab, it actually worked. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's 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 an album. There is no other album in Metallica's catalog like Saint Anger. It's really yeah. unique. Um, it's its own world, its own thing. Yeah, and uh, it's all better for it. You got to remember. I mean, Hetfield is one of the great assholes in rock and roll history. So, <laughs> uh, and so their process was always uh, Ehrlich, uh, Lars Ulrich, and uh, Hetfield would sit down and come up with the germs of the songs and you know cliff burton was involved in this too before he died but they would get together they'd come up with germs of the song hetfield would write all the lyrics and uh they uh were barred from criticizing each other in the studio yeah <laughs> and so the idea is you know uh kirk hammett would come in and do what he was told to do newstead would come in and do what he was told to do and uh they had a rule that uh that Ulrich was not allowed to criticize the lyrics or the singing and uh, Hetfield was not allowed to criticize the drumming. And <laughs> uh, most of the time they would come in, if they didn't have full songs, they would have like demoed uh, bits. And so they were a very prepared, very regimented, very rule oriented, uh, iron fisted, controlled uh, band. And in a way you could say in some ways Hetfield was very abusive uh, mm-hmm. and I mean, especially towards Newstead, uh, psychologically abusive. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, in some ways towards Hammett, although, you know, Hammett is kind of a go with the flow, uh, kind yeah. of guy, you know, he, you know, he knows he, he's a pros pro as a musician and a, a guitarist. I know that he expresses relief <laughs> that he's actually allowed to be part of the creative process and uh, saying <laughs> anger. So you go from a very regimented band to a broken band that's lost its identity that rebuilds itself by doing this sort of uh, uh, in real time uh, organic uh, bash the fuck out record. So <laughs> exactly. I mean, they clearly didn't want to do the same thing. I mean, right. cause they had gone through that decade of doing sort of pop uh, bluesy uh, kind of stuff that it, you know, alienated some folks and, and ended up in what I think is truly the Metallica album that deserves uh, uh, the derision that St. Anger has gotten, and that's Load, which I call Load of Shit. <laughs> well, re- Reload is even worse, even though it's got Fuel. Fuel is a great single, but the rest of it is a piece of shit. And so, yeah, there's just, at that point, they were just kind of phoning it in. I think by 2001, they kind of wanted to get back to, you know, they wanted to be a metal band again. And so, right. so the ambition... They didn't know what it was going to sound like, but the ambition drove it, and it ended up being this fucking uh, uh, monolith. monolith. Yeah. yeah, I know, right? Um, all right, so unfortunately, uh, we cannot use any of Metallica's music because it is copyrighted. We cannot play it on this podcast, but we are going to discuss each track. So uh, for all you listening out there, you can listen to it while you're listening to this podcast. You can also be listening to the music in the background if you want and find St. Anger on any uh, streaming service. Or if you do like me, you download the stuff and just yep. legally. <laughs> but anyway, let's start track by track. St. Anger, track one, 
frantic, like as Chris has mentioned many times. It's really difficult to come up with like a beastlier, gnarlier, more savage, more punishing opening track to any album in rock than Frantic. Um, only Metallica can take a locked-in guitar and bass groove that in any other band's hands would be slinky and groovy and instead make it menacing and foreboding of yeah. the brutal, brutal in a good way, music uh, that is to come. Um, quote, my lifestyle determines my death style. Maybe one of rock's most brutally honest and succinct admissions of self-sabotage since Neil Young's declaration that it's better to burn out than to fade away. Yep. Um, Ulrich's drumming, on the other hand, while usually derided, as we've spoken about, for its supposedly thin sound, is actually the star of this track, as it is for most of the album, uh, with the way it carries the song from one layer of heaviness to another. Just when you think the tempo can't get faster, it gets faster. Just when you think the song can't rock more, Ulrich's rhythmic changes raise the stakes. Yeah. Perfect, and, perfect opening song. Yeah, perfect song. Uh, uh, amazing outro with that groove where it kind of speeds up and, yeah. and, and does that. But it also the beginning of it is masterful because you've got this high-necked uh, rhythm part uh, and just really just kind of fine, uh, complex playing by Hetfield. Uh, that builds up into this, uh, yeah. That, that kind of builds up into, like you said, this sort of uh, bash out, angry, aggressive, uh, almost industrial, uh, yeah. uh, sort of uh, build up, and then it stops, and then you get this incredible uh, riff uh, dichotomy or sort of dual uh, riff thing going on, where you get the uh, you get the sort of the uh, subtle, uh, very high-toned uh, riff from Hetfield uh, mixed in with the sort of echoing psychedelic pedaled uh, part from, uh, from yeah. Gamut, which is just, again, it's just this sort of um, real, uh, uh, just startling, stunning, almost hypnotic exercise in there. Right. And again, you know, it just has this great verse-chorus-verse uh, structure uh, to it. Like I said, if I could get my wasted days back, uh, yeah. and, and this idea of, of sort of the, uh, the guilt ridden recovering alcoholic. Right. Uh, and then obviously one of their great hooks of all time, you know, Fran tick, 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 tock. Yeah. yeah. Over yeah. and over again. And so it's just, it's, it's one of the great, uh, metal songs of uh, certainly the last 25 years and maybe ever. Absolutely. And speaking of that, great metal song, we got more. Track number two, Saint Anger. Now we get to the first single off the album and one of the album's central tracks, the title track. Uh, for an older guy known only as a producer, uh, Bob Rock's bass playing is quite lith, and uh, it complements the hyper-aggressive guitar riffs and drum fills extremely well. Mm -hmm. uh, the song construction actually harkens back to the classical inspired constructions of their Cliff Burton era work yeah. with the multiple sections and passages that at first seem to not work together, but actually gel beautifully uh, highlight the middle section where the band settles into a, this tension filled 
4-4 beat where Hetfield recites all the things he wants his anger to do for him, eventually exploding into this like cacophony of catharsis and yep. unrelenting speedy thrash sparked by Hetfield's scream of set it free. Oh, it's one of the best moments on the album. Oh, yeah. I mean, in terms of, yeah, if you're looking at like the sort of, you know, primal scream therapy type of thing. Yeah. I mean, again, I think to the to the theme of, of sort of therapy and, and coming clean or or releasing your demons, it's there. Uh, I I'm not a huge fan of it only because I think it's uh, it's a seven minute song that could have been done in four and a half. Uh, I think it gets repetitive. I think it could have lost at least one of the um, uh, verses uh, in there, which like literally is repeating. Uh, but again, you know, there's an authentic stomp in there. You're right about Bob Rock's uh, bass in that. It's like the one one of the spots where it's actually discernible, but also uh, also supple, I guess is a strange uh, word for it. But yeah, this is another one of those uh, areas where uh, I think the drums uh, really work. It's got it's it's the most um, certain. I think it might be the most athletic. I mean, it's certainly the best use of the double bass on the entire yeah. record. But yeah. but again, t- to me, it could have been shorter, and it, it's a little dopey. Uh, not not in that outro, not, not in that bridge outro where you know the set me free, you know, and I want my anger to be healthy. Yeah, which is astonishing. But the uh, the saying anger around my neck, uh, he never gets respect uh, stuff is a little bit trite and kind of dumb, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see why people would think that, but I think it works, though. I think it works because I mean, I mean, it's it's, it's not as dumb as other new metal lyrics. <laughs> That's um, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, but he, he, it's, it's coming from an honest place especially if you know the background of the making of this record and where Hetfield is coming from. Um, I think definitely it, 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 it makes sense. Uh, doing, going, going a little cleverer wouldn't work, uh, in my yeah. opinion, um, for this. But anyway, track three. Now we get Some Kind of Monster, the track that inspired uh, the excellent documentary of the same name that we've been talking about and served as quite a bit of the source material <laughs> for this podcast, as you people out there listening have guessed. Uh, for a track that's eight and a half minutes long, it sure doesn't seem that way. No, not a at sign, all. A sign of a song that's utterly captivating. From the opening monolithic riff that seems to crawl out of the gates of Hades, uh, the song sails along as a time signature warping metal monster guided by Ulrich's masterclass in rhythm and chord change control, tempo changes, and nasty aggression. Uh, In case you didn't know already, you're going to hear a lot about how Ulrich is the musical fulcrum of this album. Um, Lyrically, it's pretty frightening. Um, Hetfield is facing his inner demons, acknowledges they're eating away at him, yet at the same time, he seems to revel in how they'll someday overwhelm him. Um, He's trying to transcend self-loathing and overcome a part of him that he knows is bad by desperately transforming it into some sort of empowerment. He has to do this if he doesn't want to go under. Um, It isn't what he's singing. It isn't what he's singing that's important. It's how he's singing it with this mixture of genuine sadness, anger, duh, and uh, more importantly, um, anguish, desperation. Um, yeah. on, an al- on an album that has some of the best vocal performances of uh, Hetfield's career. 
this song is one of his best vocal performances, period. Yeah. I mean, there's like a, yeah, there's like a staccato, uh, yeah. like, like the rhythm of it. It's one of my favorite Metallica riffs, uh, yeah. of all time. And, you know, it's got that rhythm and it's propulsive and yeah. you know, consistent. It builds. And then when it gets to the middle of that, with that, with that wicked ass, uh, drum, uh, part right. where, where, yeah. the, where the riff goes a little, it, it clips, it kind of yeah. goes, you know, it kind of cuts in half and it clips and you get this, you know, sort of the second half of, of the song and just everything is just perfect in it where you get the riffs, you get those, uh, we, the people, uh, right. sections with like what it's like double bass and double time, uh, yeah. which is just nuts. And, uh, it's, it's a masterpiece. And again, it's, it's the one song. I remember when I was getting into this, uh, 19 years ago for a while when I was listening to the record, I would not get past this song and I would yeah. play it on repeat because it yeah. really, it is mesmerizing. Right. Uh, and it, well, because it's ferocious, but it's vulnerable as shit. Right. Uh, you know? So yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, this is the voice of silence no more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's angry, but also sad. It, it combines it too. It's, it's got the macho, the macho posturing that Hetfield is known for, but mm -hmm. he's showing vulnerability in a way that he, Never had, never had before, and never would afterward. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know. Anyway, track number four, "Dirty Window." You referenced this song already. Opening yeah. with Ulrich's pounding staccato shots, "Dirty Window" opens with the album's gnarliest riff and the one most indebted to hardcore punk. Um, the slowdown breaks that are peppered throughout the track only enforce the tension and enhance the speedy parts, if you will. Uh, Metallica have always been a band known for the extreme dynamics in their music. And uh, that talent, at least in this curmudgeon's opinion, have in their discography rarely been more apparent than on Dirty Window. Uh, whereas the previous track saw Hetfield trying to make something positive out of his weaknesses, this track sees Hetfield frustrated and willing to give in. You know, I'm yeah. judge and I'm jury and I'm executioner too. Um, it would be heartbreaking if it didn't rock so viscerally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. And and this is the song that I think that most uh, uh, reminds us that one of the uh, common influences, at least at the beginning of the band, these guys were huge Misfits fans. Yeah. And so there is a real Misfits uh, to this to this song, uh, especially, and and a couple others uh, in the album, but this one. It's very misfits, and I said that that opening, uh, you know, it it reminds me of. Uh, there's a couple of uh, songs on uh, uh, "Injustice for All" that have that same kind of beat, yeah. uh, and same kind of tempo. But this is done much better and much dirtier and much nastier. And so it's just the trash can thing is just wonderful. I mean, it's yeah. it's one of my favorite uh, musical uh, pieces of the entire yeah. record. All right, next track, Invisible Kid, No Rest for the Weary. Uh, uh, the song blasts out of the gate with this brontosaurus riff straight out of the Mesozoic era. Yep. Uh, yet another eight-minute track that seems to whiz by due to its unrelenting heaviness and subtle, shifty chord changes. Uh, the only thing remotely subtle about this album, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and then there's the bridge, which comes in at the 436 mark with this angular, bizarrely gonzo riff 
straight out of the post-punk handbook. And the closest Hetfield's vocals have ever come to sexy, albeit dementedly sexy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the inner demons in Hetfield's psyche are now given their childhood origins. And while the background of them aren't given, Hetfield paints a perfect picture of the feelings, moods, and the psychotorture that would grow into unsettling and disturbing proportions in adulthood. Great track. Yeah, I, it it took me a while to get in. This this was back in the day. This was the most mocked uh, track on yeah. this record because of you know this idea of of you know Hetfield. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, people were thinking that he was speaking psychobabble or gibberish. Uh, no, this might actually be the bravest song on the record because yeah, it actually speaks to the therapy of right. you know the 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 neglected inner kid you know the kid that needs is stuck in the room and you know needs to needs to get out and 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 all of that so it's um and yeah and and I love it it's 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 one of these things like originally I think it's cacophonous or it's it's a little bit of a screecher or whatever but then as it continues it's and this goes on with these records these sustained uh riffs and these sustained uh bash outs yeah that grow more hypnotic and they they draw you in and it's it what it does is it grows it's a, a specific feeling and a specific um attention i mean it it really most of the songs that are like this in this record where they really just sort of can kind of uh, draw you in closer and closer and closer and so yeah that's what I'm saying. It's a great headphones record because, again, this is another one of those songs where the uh, the interchange between the rhythm guitar parts is astonishing. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is uh, truly one of the standouts, I think, uh, uh, on the album. All right, the next track, number six, My World. Well, we said St. Anger is one of the most underrated albums ever made. Not a perfect album. <laughs> um, if one wants to argue that the album should have been trimmed and edited a little bit, in my opinion, one could start with this track right here. Uh, in an album full of colossal riffs, this song has probably the most stock riff on the album, as Ulrich is, is fond of saying in the Some Kind of Monster documentary. And to me, the lyrics come across as bratty and childish, as opposed to the emotionally intelligent and uh, visceral power of what precludes them, you know, Yeah, I, in my opinion. I disagree. Uh, it's one of my favorite songs on, on, on the record. I think that it's, uh, again, because of that sort of hypnotic um, effect and sort of the, the mood of the record. And then, like I said, uh, my favorite moment on the entire record is the whole, uh, you know, uh, I don't even know what the question is, scream, because yeah. it's, it's like so raw. And obviously, first, you know, first or second, take, it's a take. It's not edited. And it's just... Uh, him just completely losing it, screaming it, and you can just feel that. And so, you know, I don't mind that groove. Again, like you said, maybe a stock riff, but I think the groove is there. I think that obviously, you know, Ulrich, uh, Ulrich's playing is there. And again, it's just that moment uh, of of just pure raw, uh, don't give a fuck feeling of uh, of frustration by Hetfield that makes it. So, yeah, it's one of those that we agree with, uh, don't agree on. Yeah. Track seven, uh, Shoot Me Again. This is 
uh, in my opinion, the final track of the two-song lull in the middle of the album. Uh, going beyond a stock riff, this song has what can charitably be called a simplistic, dunderheaded riff. Yeah. Um, Hetfield's sarcastic, redneck-inflected voice in the chorus just seems to undermine all the moving and affecting catharsis of the first five tracks. You know, all the shots I take, I spit back at you. It just sounds juvenile and spiteful, where before he sounded anguished and pleading. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this one kind of does approach Don't Tread on Me, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Hatfield, and right. this kind, you know, kind of kind of meatheadish, uh, standoffish thing. But at the same time, it, it kind of does have a cool hook uh, to it. Yeah. So it's not, and it's got that little... Uh, part in the beginning with the sort of the uh almost like the whistling guitar thing and so as a as a bit if you're going to look at you know it's not an album of bits and pieces but if you want to look at bits and pieces that's one of the better uh pieces uh yeah not a great song um yeah and it is a little yeah i think that there's a couple of these songs that maybe a and r put them in in their head could be possible singles uh this feels like one of them as does the next song which is fucking fantastic by the way but the next song was probably uh it actually was the third single on the record but yeah uh yeah yeah, and so let's go with that track number eight sweet amber now here's where the album picks up again and contrarily enough with a riff that begins blissfully sweet until the song bursts into this turbocharged fury again. But hey, you know, um, but you know, then again, what's with that perverse sing sing along melody in the verse sung in an unusually sweet way? Use what I want to get what you want. And the pre chorus speaks to Hetfield's ongoing inner conflict with his dark side. And right before that, what is that we hear? Is that a synthesizer line straight out of 1970s Todd Rundgren? Yep. And who and who said St. Anger was a one-note record? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I mean th- this is one of the uh the more interesting uh uh songs on the record cuz like you said it has that like kind of weird uh, uh uh almost drunken slide uh, yeah. thing in the beginning and then yeah, and then all of a sudden it just it kind of picks up and uh and you know probably the best chorus uh bit on on this record and and yeah it's 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 a fun song it was uh, clearly intended for radio play but it yeah. but it works and you can tell that they're having uh, a lot of uh, fun uh, uh cranking it out yeah uh track number 9 the unnamed feeling finally we get the most recognizably black sabbath style riff on the album and it fits comfortably in the album like a hand in glove. I bet that's the first time you'll ever hear a Smith's reference when describing a Metallica song. Yeah, eh? pretty much. <laughs> you know, um, the riff aside, uh, the verse and chorus are the closest the album comes to the new metal aspirations that the band were accused of on the record's initial release. My thing is, so what? You know, Hetfield and Ulrich, aside from being terrific musicians, were always first and foremost underratedly terrific songwriters. And if anybody can improve on the cheesy corniness of Limp Biscuit and Linkin Park and the one-dimensional monotony of Corn, it's these guys. 
Uh, and lyrically, it fits in with the album's theme of inner conflict and self-loathing. And without the stupid bagpipes and awful white boy rapping. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. You know, to me, it's... Um, musically, it may be the most boring uh, on it. But great lyric uh, and great aesthetic. Um, and again, like you said, the unnamed feeling has a whole lot of feeling. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, it's that... I never thought about the Smiths connection, but that's kind of right because <laughs> because it does have this kind of crawling, uh, yeah. sexy kind of uh, panther-like uh, uh, movement uh, uh, to it. But again, I you know to me you know in the spirit of the sort of raw and naked putting ourselves out there, uh, great you know great lyric um, and good vocal performance. I mean, this is one of the you know, le- less shouty uh, uh, vocal vocals on it, and it uh, it definitely works. Yeah, yeah well, the, the next track, track 10, is called Purify. With, <laughs> with, with Purify, we are back to punishing levels of sonic cruelty. Hetfield is finally sick of his inner demons, doesn't want them anymore, and as we come near the record, we get to Nirvana's in utero levels, of wanting to end it all. An album, by the way, that I'm willing to bet you $100 the members of Metallica were very, very well aware and knowledgeable of before they embarked on writing these songs. Could but, be. You know, yeah, I could, I, be, I, yeah, I could see it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, punishing riffs, punishing drum action that transcends the supposedly tinny trash can sound, chord changes that make logical sense as they get heavier and heavier, Metallica rarely sounded as demented and unhinged as they do on this track. And that's saying something for an album that's pretty unhinged and demented all throughout. Yeah, I, I love this song because, yeah. I mean, one, one, it rocks balls, but it, it, it's got like one of the best grooves on the entire yeah. record, too. It's yeah. just it's just uh, like you said, it's 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 metal as fuck. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I love the way it builds. The beginning of it, uh, it's uh, one of, uh, uh, I would say, one of Ulrich's mightiest uh, fills. Yeah. Uh, and it's just kind of like, whoa, you know? And yeah. it's, like I said, it's, it's at, by this point of record, I should point out that listening to this album in one sitting is an experience. And so uh, <laughs> by, by, th- by this point, you might find yourself getting a little numbed or a yeah. little, uh, uh, oh, almost tired it takes work to listen yeah. to this record because there's so much going on and again listen to it with headphones uh so by this point you're maybe getting a little exhausted but it's still even at this point you get the most it begets these last two songs are probably the most exhilarating and visceral uh one-two punch on the entire record uh, sure yeah or certainly I think, well, Frantic is perfect, but other than that, this is as visceral as it gets down here. Yeah. <laughs> I think the visceral levels get uh, pumped up to another level for the next track and the final track, All Within My Hands. Finally, we get to the coup de gras and one of the most epic and brutal and frankly disturbing uh, closing album songs in rock history. Oh, yeah. Um, Ulrich comes in guns blazing with this with his fierce patented thrash 
and Hetfield joins in uh, on a riff borrowed from Thor, the Thunder God. Yep. Uh, before settling into an oddly mid-tempo groove with a slightly psychedelicized guitar line. And that yeah. only sets this that only sets the stage for the monolithic all speakers set to 10 all instruments on hellfire first chorus of God is control I'll die if I let go then the second chorus of kill all within my hands again as if once isn't enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. the slow, the slow verse punishing two chorus pattern repeats a couple of more times, never once getting old because you know, you're listening to some harrowing personal shit. Uh, yeah. the lyrics crush all within my hands, squeeze all within my hands, choke all within my hands again. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. this is a man desperate to end it all. And, uh, not even Kurt Cobain with all his sarcasm sounded this intent. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, the the song seems to end. The song seems to end at the seven thirty mark, but actually extends into a coda, with Hetfield barking "kill, kill, kill, kill" over and over again, with yeah. increasing levels of desperation and dementia. His voice fucking cracking at a high pitch yeah. at the strain. Um, it's hard to find a rock vocal performance so again visceral and affecting and yet painful and disturbing. Um, yeah. Thankfully, thankfully, in a way, it all ends as it only can with dissonant guitar noise and Hetfield punctuate, punctuating it all with what is seemingly his least uh, frenetic and angry drum hits on the record. Uh, it's a climactic end to one of the most powerful depictions of mental anguish and depression ever recorded on a rock album. Yeah, uh, you know, all all within my hands, like you said, it to me, it's the, it's not a death or a suicide in the physical sense. It's like a right, right. It's a spiritual death. Yeah. It's a, it's you know, in in rehab, you know, it's the old uh, uh, extract it and lift it up to God, or or yeah. you know, give it up to the give it up right. to the celestial uh, beings. Yeah. And so yeah. I think this is what uh, I've always interpreted him doing. It's like, it's all within yeah. my hands again. And so this time it's like, I want it to die. I want those demons. And I want that place from the alcoholism and the rage came from. And yeah. oh, that, that coda is just, oh my goodness. I mean, it's yeah. just stunning. And uh, depending on the mood I'm in and depending, it just, just happened now. It's just jaw dropping and it just, Oh, it's just it leaves you with a chill, and it's just. Yeah. I mean, I I can relate to it too, because like, who hasn't been in that kind of, like you said, almost desperate, unhinged, uh, almost like psychotic break, uh, state. Right. Uh, it's 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 astonishing, and you know, again, it's uh, uh, you know, like great, you know, the the interplay between the drums and the riffs and the the uh, the the two like the double. Uh, guitar, uh, rhythm guitar thing goes on there. So, uh, you know, we we sort of named it there. And uh, it's a 75, I would say this, it's hard to get through it all in the 75-minute one sit, sit down. But it's right. essential because it's it's a unified uh, body of work. Um, right. You can't say that about the Black Album. You can't say that about Injustice for All. You can say that about saying anger. Uh, yeah. It's it's meant to be consumed as a singular statement. 
even though it's pulverizing, even though it might, you know, it might end up numbing your mind a little bit. Uh, it can be exhausting because it, it just, it's, it's fucking relentless, Yeah, you know, but you have to listen to it in one, in one sitting. And so, uh, uh, begins astonishingly ends astonishingly and lots of amazing stuff in between. Yeah. Um, listen, if you like, if, if this album had come out then now, whatever, replace the take then replace the name Metallica with any other band's name and say this is their debut album it would have been hailed as a classic mm-hmm. yeah pretty <laughs> much know? yeah and um, i think you're right i mean i think the derision it got was from this from was from this notion of uh you know the the Metallica fanboy thing of oh what are they going to do next and they're still the big band and and then obviously the Napster thing came out. I said, "Oh, okay. So what? Uh, what? What bullshit are we gonna get again? I mean, are they? You know, there was all these rumors that they were going back to their thrash roots and what that was gonna sound like. And then this came out, and I think that there was a lack of imagination uh, at that point, and everybody was like, "What the fuck is this shit?" And yeah. uh, they didn't really have the open minds, which I think is why it took. You know, even my take at the time was uh, it was a brave album. And it was a laudable album because the shit is metal. I mean, you know, you can't yeah. say it, you know, it's not as immediately as accessible. Like nobody in their right minds is going to say it's better than Master of Puppets. But, right. but so what? On its own, it's a pretty fabulous fucking record. Yeah. You know? No, it, 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 it's like I said, you know, it, it's, it's personally my third favorite Metallica album. Yeah. And I would say it's my fourth uh, uh favorite but hey you know top five considering everything else uh everything else that they have uh ain't yeah. bad uh ain't bad <laughs> you know yeah yeah oh, and, and the last thing i want to say about this record man is it good to listen to listen to when you're running on a treadmill it yeah some awesome, relentless that's what you want when you're running on a treadmill something that gets you going Woo! yeah boy yeah boy yeah it, it's a workout record although i would argue that ride the lightning is better uh, for the treadmill, because I mean, because like the uh, the middle, like that that when Ride the Lightning, the song goes absolutely fucking ridiculous. Yeah, man, do you want to start running like a hundred miles an hour <laughs> in a treadmill? So, so anyway, Ma- 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 Metallica can sell a shitload of treadmills, and we just proved it. It's time, everyone, uh, like we usually do at the end of these episodes, to enter our vaults. And this is the segment called The Vault. Uh, here, uh, uh, Arturo and I, uh, as you can suggest uh, here from the coins, we go deep into our treasure trucks. And uh, we find uh, old uh, albums that we love and have aged well and that, uh, w- that we uh, recommend. And since we've been talking about what we feel is one of the most underrated uh, heavy metal albums of all time. What the hell? We're going to talk about underrated heavy metal albums. And so, Arturo, uh, you you're up first, and uh, you have a really uh, interesting one to say the least uh, to kick us off with. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay, for those of you curmudgeonly listeners or a little too young to know, Motorhead were one of the most consistent brands in heavy metal. For roughly a 30-year period, the late 1970s through the late noughties, uh, the band was a touring and recording machine. 
They had 21 studio albums, 15, yes, 15 live albums, five EPs, and a touring schedule that rivaled the Grateful Dead. Now, in fact, the Dead comparison is rather apt because no, Motorhead were not a noodly jam band, but they had a fierce, loyal fan base that traveled around to see them. They were also one of the few metal bands, if not the only metal band, who were accepted by punk rock bands. Uh, and it makes sense. You know, there isn't a single band ever who can, other band ever, who can claim that they were a profound influence on both thrash metal and hardcore punk. And then there was the irresistible, charismatic force of nature that was the late, great Lemmy Kilmeister himself. Uh, the band's lead singer, or growler, uh, bassist, chief songwriter, lyricist, and swashbuckling rock and roll philosopher, Lemmy led a booze and drugs lifestyle that only Keith Richards could have survived. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah. The, fact, the fact that Lemmy lived until the age of 70 is actually quite remarkable. <laughs> you know, um, uh, he died in, uh, in 2015 at the age of 70. Um, what separated Lemmy from most songwriters in the world of heavy metal was the fact that there was a worldly wit and a humor to his lyrics. Um, he also had little time for the sci-fi, fantasy, swords and sorcery bullshit that captivated so many cheese metal, cheesy metalheads. See Iron Maiden. Well, uh, <laughs> Ronnie James Dio. Dio. Um, his songs were more grounded and rooted in real-life issues, usually targeting the three things that he hated most in the world, organized religion, politics, and war. Um, Lemmy was no meat-headed metal guy. He was a, a really smart, sharp dude. Um, but anyway, back to the band's music. Uh, the band's commercial peak, and arguably their creative peak as well, was their 1980 masterpiece, Ace of Spades. Uh, by 1986, though, while the band still maintained a hardcore cult following, the 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 what followed um, or the following years and what they did didn't quite translate to mainstream success. Remember, this was the era of truly awful glam and hair metal. Um, they spent most of the 1980s on independent labels like Bronze Records and later on GWR Records, both British indie labels specializing in metal. Orgasmatron came out on the latter, GWR Records. And in this curmudgeonly, curmudgeonly persons, or this curmudgeon's not-so-humble opinion, it is Motorhead's greatest album of the 1980s, not named Ace of Spades. There you go. Now, Lemmy himself criticized the album for years after its release, specifically for the way it was mixed. Um, producer Bill Laswell had previously worked with uh, Mick Jagger and Herbie Hancock, and in Lemmy's own words from his autobiography, autobiography White Line Fever, uh, quote, Bill was good for getting sounds, but he fucked everything up in the mix. It was a much better album when he took it to New York than when he brought it back. It was dreadful. Orgasmatron was mud. Now, while it is true that the production quality is a bit on the flat side, 
with several songs sounding a bit thin and compressed. Two things have to be considered when evaluating this album. First, this was the 1980s. You know, thin, flat, compressed, bass-lacking sounds was kind of the prevalent sound of the day for a lot of rock music. And as a metal album coming out on a small indie label, one shouldn't have expected a Queen-style bombastic production, you know? Um, Second, the songs themselves are some of the best the band ever produced. Uh, This is the first album that they employed two guitarists. They were previously a trio. And it really shows in the full muscular feel of the tracks. Uh, Guitarist Phil Campbell himself in the documentary The Guts and the Glory said it, uh, quote, I think the production let us down on Orgasmatron. The songs were really good. We put a lot of effort into the songs. Hell yeah, they did. Yeah. Um, not even not even Laswell's supposedly muddy mix can dilute the impact of Claw, one of the most savage iterations of, Mo- of Motorhead's nasty, kick-drum-driven speed metal. Um, it even has a rarity in Motorhead's discography, with Lemmy screaming in a high-level pitch rather than his usual you know, guttural howl. Um, the breakneck rocker right in with the driver is what some would consider Motorhead's attempt at hardcore punk. But in fact, if anyone knows their rock music history, it's hardcore punk that attempted to be Motorhead. <laughs> yeah. Um, with Lemmy and, and his band doing this style, they are accentuating how much of a fundamental influence Motorhead was on the hardcore scene. Musically speaking, that is not so much in the, you know, musically speaking, not so much in the, the booze and drugs lifestyle sense, because you know, hardcore punk is skewed that. Um, and then there's Mean Machine, which roars with an intensity and power that not even Motorhead themselves matched that often, all that often. Um, Motorhead have always been accused of putting out the same album over and over again, much like ACDC, but that's not totally... Frankly, okay, I'll admit that's not totally untrue. <laughs> however, however, there are some individual albums where the band raised their game, both musically and compositionally, crafting and producing songs much stronger, sharper, more direct, and more melodic than their usual fare. And uh, Orgasmatron is one of those albums. Check it out. Yeah, uh, Orgasmatron, uh, I would say, is. Uh, it's certainly more metal than punk. It's uh, it's definitely uh, a testament. It's it's a product of its era, like you said. The uh, the mix, uh, you know, it sounds like a lot of those other. It sounds very L.A. Uh, in in its mix. But yeah. let's just put it this way: it's the uh, the band that all those L.A. bands really wish they could yeah. be. Uh, they, yeah. they you know they can't touch the craftsmanship. Uh, right. of of the record and like yeah. you said there's just there's just some killer shit all the way through it i mean i love built uh built for speed uh yeah. personally but that whole you know middle of the record you know claw mean machine uh built for speed riding with the driver geez what was yeah. the theme there uh it's <laughs> you know it's, it's just fabulous and again it's it's almost like uh again motley crew uh, arguably may have been influenced by Motorhead. And, you know, you could see uh, that maybe, you know, Nikki Six was trying to approach this, but nope, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, couldn't uh, couldn't do it. And like you said, Lemmy is one of the great rock stars of, of all time. And he's in 
good rock star uh, form uh, here. I hadn't heard this record in years, uh, uh, <laughs> but you know, before this, and uh, it's worth noting that uh, uh, the uh, current release has a second disc uh, of uh, live uh, cuts. Mm. Uh, the live version of Ace the Spade, Ace of Spades on disc two, the equivalent of disc two, is fucking awesome. Uh, it's wow. a, a BBC uh, uh, taping, and that's most of this comes from the same uh, BBC live uh, uh, taping. And so, and then there's also an alternate version of Claw in there, which is fun. Uh, not quite yeah. as good, but at least it's fun. It's worth checking out. So, uh, yeah, uh, and well, it it also cracks me up that. Uh, that uh, Motorhead was the, like the least cliche band in the world, but they still managed to have a track on here called Dr. Rock, which, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is much better than 90% of the Dr. Rocks that uh, existed out there. So, uh, yeah, good good call bringing this one out of the vault, dude. Uh, you know, Lemmy is always worth celebrating. and But like I said, this is probably them at their most metal. And that's why yeah. that's kind of why I like it. So. Okay, right. so so now from speaking of really really metal, yeah. So we go from sort of the orthodox '80s metal uh, and uh, and punk hybrid to uh, metal gymnastics, uh, yeah. as, as I'll call it. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking about Mastodon's uh, 2004 uh, masterwork Leviathan, uh, and uh, really kind of an interesting. Uh, like it's a weird record fundamentally, but it works because these guys are so freaking good uh, and we're so freaking locked in. This is at the beginning of their career. So let's uh, let's explain this and get into it. White Whale, Holy Grail. Gee, what's this album about? <laughs> uh, now, yep, that chorus to uh, opening song Blood and Thunder tells us that Leviathan is an album in which a prog metal band from Atlanta, of all places, adapts Melville's Moby Dick, of all things, as a thrash metal banger. <laughs> and they succeed tremendously. Uh, this is heavy metal to put on heavy rotation through your headphones and to somehow relax to. Uh, strangely, I somehow feel better every time I listen to this record. Now, Leviathan... Uh, Leviathan was Mastodon's uh, second album uh, following a 2002 debut, and it propelled them to the status of the metal band you could name drop at a loft party in Brooklyn, uh, which uh, was an actual thing when I moved back uh, to New York during the mid-aughts. As Samuel L. Jackson proclaimed in the third act of Pulp Fiction, this is some gourmet shit. <laughs> so... For a lot of metal fans and a lot of critics, uh, this positioning of Mastodon in the metal universe has really deprived the band of some of the respect they deserve and of some of the reverence we should all have for Leviathan. Uh, this is one of the most intense and most intelligent metal albums I've ever heard. Uh, despite its relatively high profile, it remains very, very underrated. Uh, the obsessions, paranoia, and inertia of Captain Ahab translate remarkably well into these wild time signatures, these King Kong and methamphetamines riffs, and these extended workouts that ride waves much like a, legend a legendary white whale may. 
the highlights here travel along a spectrum from absolute combustion and badass blast work, see track number four, Island, to a prettier intensity that still manages to rock balls. See track Megalodon with a dreamlike info intro that evokes Pantera that builds into crunchy orthodox speed metal that from an athletic muso standpoint is probably the most impressive thing on the entire record. Uh, this all builds up into the remarkable 14-minute coda Hearts Alive, which while being alternatively gorgeous and muscular, also gives away that early Metallica, there, there's that band, is a huge influence on Mastodon. There are echoes of Call of Cthulhu, Battery, and One here, there, and everywhere as the song builds. It's grand as shit, in other words. Now, Mastodon's output in the years since has oscillated from pretty freaking great to pretty freaking terrible in the years since uh, they were thrust into uh, sort of the heavy metal stratosphere and or uh, uh, realm of mockery. Uh, me personally, I am a fan of 2011's The Hunter. Uh, seek that one out after you consume and learn to adore Leviathan. Now, on the other hand, I am not a fan of their most recent record, last October's Boarfest, Hushed and Grim, in which the gnarly growl of Leviathan has been lifted for an annoying combo of Bruce Dickinson and Bob Dylan impressions, <laughs> and the music is a plastering of various metal cliches, most of which have echo and reverb. Yeah. Now, I figure Mastodon has earned the right to be misguided and decadent in this stage, however. Leviathan, an undying masterpiece, affords them that right. More power to them. Uh, definitely check out Leviathan. I love it. Yeah. Um, Mast uh, Mastodon, to me, they're, they're one of the great tragedies in heavy metal <laughs> for the fact that those first two albums, Remission from 2002 and Leviathan from 2004, are two of the greatest heavy metal records ever made. And after Leviathan, in my opinion, completely this band has totally fallen off a cliff into just unfolding levels of shittiness. Um, I can, uh, over like after Leviathan, they've put out six more albums 2006 Blood Mountain, 2009 Crack the Sky, 2011's The Hunter, the one that you like. Um, 2014, Once More Around the Sun, 2017, Emperor of Sand, 2021, Hushed and Grim. That's six albums. I can count only six good songs on those six albums total. Yeah, um, and, and it is probably all on The Hunter. Yeah. yeah. And here's the thing. They've, I don't want to say sold out, but they completely, with, with each successive album, they completely streamlined their sound for corporate rock radio to the point where they've completely taken the guts out of their music and out of what made them unique and special. And yeah. now th th there's very little that separates them from Chris Jericho's Fozzy band. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're, they're that bad now. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much like this last record. Again, uh, things have gotten airier. They've gotten popular. They've gotten more self-conscious. Uh, they decided to actually sing. Uh, one of the great yeah. things about Leviathan is it has that growl, uh, 
I mean, look, it's in terms of aesthetic, in terms of uh, theme, in terms of intensity, and in terms of, again, kind of uh, the whole idea of Captain Ahab being out of his fucking mind. Uh, yeah. It captures that. I mean, it, you know, it's a thrash metal album that uh, honors Moby Dick wonderfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That that should not be a thing, but these guys uh, right. pulled, pulled it off. And so it's... Uh, I listened to this album nonstop for about a about two month period in 2005, and I've come back to it over the years, uh, over and over again. Uh, there's for what it's worth, folks. There's lots of live uh, stuff you can find on YouTube of them playing uh, uh, yeah. songs uh, from this record, and right. uh, they were a, a fucking awesome live band. And I'm assuming they probably still are, but they just right. they just just blasted. And they're just really tight. So I'll, yeah. I'll give it to them. I mean, look, if Mastodon ever comes through um, Houston and I actually pay attention uh, to uh, the concert uh, uh, schedule, which I haven't done in years, I would I would go see them. You know? Yeah. I mean, as long as they, as long as they keep it to root, as long as I'm willing to accept it, if like 80 percent of the show is remission and Leviathan. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. Just, Play songs from those two albums because everything else is a piece of shit. It really is. Well, I mean, well, hey, look, you go to a metal show live, you want to get blown out of the building. I mean, they would at least accomplish that, you know? Yeah. They, I mean, they have a lot of talent, but like you said, I think they lost their focus and I, I think we're content to uh, ride their reputation that they got from SM. Yeah. Like I right. said, like I said, they became a cocktail party. Uh, they became cocktail party metal. It's like it became yeah. acceptable to talk about like uh, prog metal at uh, at, par- right. at at parties with the intelligentsia, uh, which is right. really kind of bizarre. Uh, but <laughs> uh, be that as it may, uh, definitely check out. Uh, yeah, the uh, it, it it almost sounds like a Japanese monster movie, Orgasmatron and Leviathan. <laughs> <laughs> it's huge, you know. <laughs> Yeah. All right. All right, folks. We have now come to the end. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed our defense of St. Anger and our recommendations, or hope you will enjoy those recommendations. Um, for our next episode, we're taking the underrated theme and expanding on it. The last, this episode is an underrated album, Metallica St. Anger. Our previous episode was where the underrated discography of Richard and Linda Thompson. Well, Richard and Linda Thompson started in the 1970s. So we're going to take the underrated theme and expand it and extrapolate it to the entire decade. So we're going back to a countdown format. Chris and I will count down the 10 most underrated albums of the 1970s. And and we assure you it will not include Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> yeah, and, and and as a reminder, folks, you can always reach us at curmudgeonrock at g- uh, gmail.com. And we implore you to join the Curmudgeon League community, which has been a lot of fun and is getting really good engagement. And uh, it, it really kind of brings what we're doing here for life. And it extends our mission. Like we say, this is your podcast and uh, your perspective, and we are your advocates. So uh, tune in in two weeks. And we'll be there for you as we always are. So you've probably heard a lot, a lot, a lot in the past few days about Spotify, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, 
Joe Rogan, vaccine information, and about what and how and where you should stream your music. Just curious, uh, where do you come down in all of this? Uh, me personally, I just want all my Neo albums back as part of my paid Spotify subscription. But where do you stand? Reach out to us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com and tell us how you really feel. Thank you for listening, everyone, and we will talk to you on the next episode.